Hey everyone, welcome back to the Monday edition of the Goody Reader Radio Show, and I'm joined every Monday by Digital Book World's own Mr. Jeremy Greenfield. Jeremy, how are things? Things are good, Michael. So, things are good for readers with the advent of a new subscription platform launched by Amazon called Kindle Unlimited, and this was kind of leaked prematurely about a day early, and... I guess the the premise of it, for those of you listening that are not familiar with it, it there's about 600,000 titles. Uh, they've made deals with publishers such as Scholastic, but they have not reached any type of agreement with any of the big five publishers. Uh, 600,000 titles, again, uh, both ebooks and audiobooks, uh, for $9.99 a month. Jeremy, what are your impressions on Kindle Unlimited? Well, it was only a matter of time, it seemed, until Amazon had a more substantive entry into the ebook subscription uh, service business with Oyster and Scribd very aggressively going after that subscription market and as an alternative to Amazon, a way to reach readers, to understand readers, to talk to readers, to get money from readers that wasn't through Amazon, and basically an alternate delivery channel so publishers could be less reliant on Amazon. Um, you know, additionally, uh, Amazon is making a very interesting play here uh, because its main business when it comes to digital reading is selling books through its Kindle service. It has Audible, obviously, that's audiobooks, and it has um, you know, a self-publishing uh, business, and it has, um, you know, the Kindle Owners Lending Library that you get through Amazon Prime. But basically, it mostly makes money by selling you a $10, or $12, $8 ebook on, on, uh, through, through the Kindle devices or on Amazon.com. Now, this service competes directly with it. If I'm a reader, uh, I'm actually being offered on the Amazon page value proposition of reading the book for free if I sign up for this Kindle Unlimited thing, if the book is available through Kindle Unlimited, or buying the book outright for you know probably almost the same amount of money as signing up for a month of Kindle Unlimited. Um, so Amazon is really investing in competing with itself, and this is you know classic startup behavior uh, to, to sort of disrupt yourself. It's the, uh, the solution to the innovator's dilemma that um, you know, the smaller, nimbler companies that are unafraid to, to sort of disintermediate businesses are going to have an advantage over the bigger established players that have a lot of stake in the game. Well, Amazon is showing that it can be um, a big established player and also nimble and disintermediate itself. One of the big, I guess, uh, big deals about Kindle Unlimited is the fact that indie authors are front and center. This is a platform, because Amazon was not able to reach an agreement with the Simon & Schuster's, uh, Random House, Hachette's of the World, a lot of those titles are coming from self-published authors. And Oyster and Scribd, like you mentioned, are competitors to Kindle Unlimited, but Indie authors actually can't directly submit their content uh, to those sites. Instead, they have to use uh, proxy services such as uh, Smashwords in order to get their titles included in, in uh, those ecosystems. But with Kindle Unlimited, all you have to do is self-publish your title through Amazon and uh, opt in for their uh, KDP Select program, and you can get your title in Kindle Unlimited. But... Jeremy, there's a lot of contention 
uh, with uh, Kindle Unlimited, a lot of authors are not sure about how much money that they're actually going to make per title. And Amazon doesn't really have um, a, f a specific figure for each title. Uh, authors do get paid if a person reads 10% or more of your book, uh, but that how much you get paid is an unknown. Why is that? Because with Kindle Unlimited, it works similarly for authors in the Kindle Direct Publishing Select program as, as the Kindle Owners Lending Library does. That's, that's a lot of words and that's a lot of acronyms. So let me, let me try to break it down simply. Amazon has something called the Kindle Owners Lending Library where if you own a Kindle and you are a member of Amazon Prime, you can borrow up to one book a month for free. And it basically is a very similar selection to the Kindle Unlimited selection. Now, the self-published authors who are involved in the Kindle Owners Lending Library don't get paid every time someone borrows their book uh, as if the book had been purchased. The way they get paid is there's a pool of money. Um, it's uh, somewhere in the range of a million dollars, and it fluctuates month to month. I think for July it was $1.2 million. Um, and the pool of money is divided evenly between the authors based on how many uh, times their books were borrowed. So if author A has their book borrowed 100 times and author B has their book borrowed 100 times and author C has their book borrowed 200 times, and that's all the authors who have books borrowed, then author A and B will each get a quarter of the pot and author C will get half the pot. So it's evenly divided based on how many borrowed. Kindle Unlimited is meant to work the same way, that the number of borrows that the book has will determine what portion of this sort of pot that authors will get. And, you know, traditionally with the Kindle Owners Lending Library, it's worked out to about $2 a borrow that authors would get, which if you're pricing a book at $3 or $4, that's about what you get when someone purchases your book from Amazon. But if your book is 4 5 6 $7, then you're not getting as much as you would get as if someone purchased your book. And if Kindle Unlimited really takes off and people are borrowing these books in droves, then the amount of money you get per borrow could go way down. Uh, and authors are very wary about this. There's a really interesting post on Digital Book World right now by Hachette author and self-published author Michael Sullivan who talks about how Amazon has created this two-tier kind of class system for authors and making some authors, specifically the ones in Kindle Direct Publishing Select, second-class citizens when it comes to Kindle Unlimited. I'm for Kindle Unlimited, and I believe that self-published authors should be taking advantage of it. He, here's my thoughts on the situation. Uh, Kindle Unlimited is U.S. only right now, but there are plans to bring it to other markets by the end of the year. But you look at how much Amazon makes off of book sales in general. Uh, I've read a number of reports that say about $5 billion uh, annually stem from book sales. Now, this includes both tangible books and digital books. Uh, a lot of people say that roughly... Amazon controls 65% of the U.S. e-book market uh, with only Apple, Barnes & Noble, and Google having minority shares. And Amazon and um, you know various other sites have said that uh, Amazon uh, controls or self-published titles on Amazon account for 25% of the top 100 list. So self-published writers do quite well on the Amazon ecosystem. And Amazon 
probably the most, if you look at globally, uh, they sell the most books. You know, they, they outsell a lot of bookstores in terms of the books that they uh, sell in their ecosystem. And indie authors, I think, could really take advantage of Kindle Unlimited at this time just because there simply isn't uh, a lot of stellar authors that are front and center. There's no James Patterson's, no Danielle Steele's, uh, no Neil Gaiman's of the world that you're competing against. You're really just competing against other self-published authors. So I think that this is likely something that I would recommend for authors to opt into because... um, the Amazon just, just has a lot of clout in the book selling world. Now, there are some downsides. Uh, if you opt into Kindle Unlimited, you have a period of exclusivity uh, of 90 days with Amazon. So this means that if you also sell your book through uh, Barnes & Noble, or you sell your book through Kobo Writing Life, or you sell your book through Smashwords, in order to get published with Unlimited and have your book included in there, you actually have to take your book down from all of the other sites that you self-publish with, or Amazon might blacklist your book from the platform. Uh, despite all that, most people I know who have e-readers have Kindles. Uh, most people that I know that casually buy books do it through Amazon. So I think that given the marketing machine behind Amazon, that I do think that indie authors could benefit. What do you think, Jeremy? If I, if I was an aspiring writer or if I've written a few books and I was like, Jeremy, you know, is Kindle Unlimited viable for me? Is this something that I should pursue? What would you tell me? I think for most authors, it won't make a huge difference in income, and probably uh, Kindle Direct Publishing Select is is a good way to you know keep it simple, to get noticed, to give yourself some special opportunities. Um, you know, then again, it, it is good to be everywhere if you can. But for a lot of authors, you know, those authors near the top, the ones who are making a decent living at it or are trying to make a decent living at it, the ones who are making a really good living at it, this is a really important issue. And there are two things I think that are at play. One is you know, how is this going to affect my sales right now? How is this going to affect my income right now? And the second is, if you read the fine print with Kindle Unlimited, you know, all of these things that they're they're uh, thinking about and all of these, these uh, terms are, are can be changed at any time at the sole discretion of Amazon, which, you know, the authors knew that uh, going in, but un- until now, uh, the authors have gotten a really, really good deal from Amazon. And, you know, when this whole Amazon Hachette dispute, which is still going on, um, started uh, months and months ago, you know, a lot of self-published authors really unabashedly said, well, this is what the publishers deserve, this is what they should get, and, and we're rooting for Amazon. Um, but what I think a lot of them failed to think about, and what I think they're thinking about now is, you know, we are very vulnerable also. We're, we're just as vulnerable as any one of these publishers out there. In fact, much more so because we're just one author. We have a signed contract uh, with Amazon, more or less. And Amazon could change a contract at any time, and it has all the power in the relationship. So I think first off, you know, authors are wondering, you know, is this good for me now? And second of all, they're looking at the way the events are transpiring and thinking, you know, this is a sort of a dangerous or an unsettling situation for me as a business partner. Um, you know, all that said, if I were an author and I were probably, you know, an average author in the middle of the road, I would do it. I would try it out. I mean. There, there, it can't really hurt that much to give it at least a try. You're, you'll be in Kindle Select for 90 days, and then, and then maybe go back to selling some other way. I, I don't see a harm in trying it. I mean, Kindle Limited could really take off. I think that it's a tough road to hoe because you know people don't read that much, 
uh, in general. Most Americans, three-quarters of Americans, read a book last year at least, and the median number of books read was six to seven. So it doesn't really make financial sense for the largest swath of readers to pay $120 a year or $108 a year in the case of Scribd uh, to, to join these services. Um, so I, I think that ultimately it, may not, it won't be hugely successful and it won't really affect authors that much. Um, but I would try it if I were an author just to see. I read an interesting article in Forbes that you may be aware of about how libraries should just all close and give everyone subscriptions to Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, it's interesting um, that that a lot of people are sort of up in arms about, you know, now that Amazon has come out with this Kindle Unlimited thing, everyone's saying, hey, what about libraries? Everyone's just intermediating libraries. And I have a couple things to say about this. You know, where were these people when Scribd and um, and uh, Oyster came out. You know, first of all, Scribd and Oyster are making a much more concerted effort to develop a large collection, much like a library would. You know, Amazon has more books, but most of those books are Kindle Direct Publishing Select books. Um, it doesn't have deals with big five publishers like Scribd and Oyster does, and it sort of, you know, it, it has cobbled together a really impressive collection, especially considering the way it's done so. But I would say Scribd and Oyster are, are sort of closer or more going after that sort of complete library situation. Um, and second of all, you know, as you probably know and a lot of the listeners know, the situation when it comes to borrowing ebooks from libraries is just a really crappy experience. Um, you know, I was uh, speaking in front of a room of NYU uh, publishing students about a month ago, and we had them raise their hands, uh, there were about 200 of them, and asked them, how many of you have tried to borrow an ebook uh, from your local library. And these, these kids are really smart and they, they love, you know, reading and they love books and they love experimenting. And about, I would say, 20, 25% of them raised their hand, maybe a quarter of them raised their hand. And then we said, how many of you have been, were successful at borrowing that book from your, were you able to do it, to borrow that book from your public library? And every single hand went down, which to me was shocking because, you know, it's not impossible. A lot of people do it. Um, but it's not a great user experience. So I think it's a library's get a better user experience, um, it's not really comparable. Uh, that said, you know, they've had DVDs at libraries forever. Um, libraries now offer other kinds of streaming video. You know, YouTube is free, but Netflix is still a running business. So I don't see why um, that argument means that Kindle Unlimited uh, isn't a viable business. Let's talk about non-conventional distribution methods for eBooks. Uh, a lot of publishers are saying that due to this Hachette and Amazon dispute that maybe, you know, maybe keeping all of our eggs in one basket and really relying on Amazon to uh, hustle the majority of our titles isn't the right call. So a lot of companies are, you know, starting various initiatives, either selling ebooks directly, um, doing a store within a store concept with a website such as Books A Million. Uh, but social media right now as a tool to purchase books is suddenly looking a lot more viable this year as opposed to 
uh, any other year, uh, Twitter and Amazon have reached an agreement uh, for a program called Amazon Cart, where an indie author could put an Amazon link to their book, and then you could reply to their tweet with the hashtag Amazon Cart, and it will automatically add that book to your shopping cart. Uh, Facebook is developing a new Buy It Now button, but they're doing it in a, a limited trial period where you can actually, uh, people could post books, uh, both digital digital and tangible and then uh, there's a buy it now button underneath the book uh, you click the buy it now button you can pay with PayPal or credit cards and things like that and then the book will automatically be delivered to you uh, if it's a physical book it'll be shipped out if it's a digital book it'll tell you various different ways that you could have it downloaded either to your Android or iOS or to your e-reader and now uh, apparently BitTorrent is another uh, viable alternative um, you know, as as we know, when you think of BitTorrent, you think of piracy. You know, pirated movies, pirated books, pirated videos. Uh, but the company that started it all, which is called BitTorrent, uh, they have developed in the last about six months a new uh, free and paid system to distribute your digital content. Um, they've had... Uh, you know, monthly bundle visitors have increased from 2.1 million to 25 million uh, in the last two months. And um, a lot of them come from social channels. And a lot of, uh, you look at statistics, like 75% of bundle users uh, are, coming, are coming from returning users. And, and what this bundling concept is, is being able to distribute um, music, movies, and books and have that have customers be able to uh, download it for free uh, via torrenting software or actually pay. And what a lot of musicians are doing is sort of the iTunes thing where you have a full album, you can give like three or four tracks for free, but if you want like the entire album, you have to pay like $2.99 and you do it with PayPal or credit cards. And then once the payment has been authorized, uh, then it starts downloading as normal uh, via your torrent software. And the publishers haven't really committed themselves to this platform, uh, but a lot of author, uh, a lot of musicians such as Moby, Madonna, uh, Dilla Soul, Diplo, and things like that have all sold uh, content through torrenting software. So my question to you, Jeremy, is, uh, you know, social channels such as Facebook and Twitter are getting involved and uh, allowing authors to sell their books. And now BitTorrent seems to be like a viable alternative for either publishers uh, such as Tor that don't have digital rights management or, uh, you know, Pottermore, which does digital watermarks, but there's nothing hindering users from buying it downloading it and then putting on whatever devices they want. They don't have to deal with Adobe Digital Editions or anything like that. So is social media and this kind of distribution platform the future of, of, of digital dis book distribution? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think it's, I would say it's the future of digital book distribution, um, but it's certainly a part of the future of digital book distribution. Uh, and this is not that new. I mean, this is just the next iteration of something that's been happening for years. You know, we've had uh, startups like Gumroad and Gangsy that have allowed you to put widgets on your own website, on Facebook pages, uh, to sell ebooks. And the idea is, you know, make it easier for people to go from hearing about and getting interested in the book to finding out more about it and buying it. And Amazon's been really good at that. You know, when you search for a book, 
uh, on Google, the first page that comes up is generally the Amazon page. So, so to go from interest to the ability to purchase is really, really simple. But let's say you hear about something on Facebook or Twitter, you know, shortening that uh, purchase cycle, that decision uh, cycle, that decision funnel that consumers have to go down um, could be very valuable to publishers and, and book retailers. Um, you know, I just think it's going to be marginal uh, going forward. It's not going to be the way that most people buy ebooks. I mean, most people buy ebooks right now. Uh, on their e-readers, on their mobile devices, uh, and and have them right then and there, and they buy them from the store. Um, I think that for the foreseeable future, the way most people do it, um, you know, people aren't clamoring for new ways to discover books the way the industry is worried about it. And so I don't think, you know, they're wringing their hands looking all over Facebook and Twitter for books. I think it's, you know, it's one small area where a subset of readers does find their books. And, you know, if we can make it, it a little bit easier for some of them to buy their books right then and there, I think it'll make a marginal difference. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be the next big thing. Um, you possibly are right. I mean, uh, if there's one thing that indie authors use to advertise their books is Twitter and Facebook. I mean, I don't really know of any a self-published author that does not use those two platforms to uh, pimp their book out or to hustle their book or to, you know, try to encourage people sometimes gently, sometimes uh, sometimes in your face to, to buy your book. So I think that Facebook and Twitter acting as e-commerce vehicles, I think that that's actually very interesting. And being able to deal with those companies directly as opposed to dealing with third parties and doing widgets and everything like that, um, I think builds a little bit more customer trust. I would be more inclined to pay Twitter uh, or to pay Facebook uh, for the buy it now buttons in order to be able to sell things directly. I think that, that that's a good idea. So, uh, Jeremy, uh, author earnings is um, – an initiative put together by Hugh Howie and a random unknown data guy. Uh, they put together like these monthly statistical reports based on metrics from Amazon uh, in order to give people a little bit of a heads up on uh, how books are selling in general, but more or less how books are selling on Amazon. Uh, for those of maybe the listeners that are, are, are listening to the show today, w give us an, an overview of what author earnings is all about. So Hugh Howey uh, runs author earnings, and basically he and an anonymous data guy, um, you know, quote-unquote data guy, we don't really know what this person's credentials are, um, scrape Amazon pages for sales ranking. Then what they do is they take that data, and so what the data is is this book is ranked number one, and this book is ranked number two, and this book's ranked number three, and they go thousands and tens of thousands of books deep. And what they do is they talk to certain indie authors, and they, they estimate based on what some of the sales are for indie author books that are somewhere in the list what all of the sales are for the books. So the, the method is, let's say the number 10 books sold 3,000 copies today, and the number 12 books sold 2,000 copies. Well, then you know that the number 11 books sold somewhere in between 2,000 and 3,000, and you sort of guesstimate. And then what they do is they take the sale price of the book, and they estimate how much money the author is making based on the sale price. Now, if you know about statistical analysis and how the data is gathered, you, you already know that there are myriad problems with the way that this data is gathered. So, you know, Michael, 
I'm happy to talk about the author earnings data and what the problems are, but I don't think that the results are relevant to reality because I don't think that they're accurate in the least. And I think they're they're actually deliberately misleading. So I don't think it's actually even worth considering what author earnings has to say about how much money authors make because I don't think that they really even know. And actually, there there is a much more complex issue now, which is that Kindle uh, Unlimited and Kindle First Look books, when somebody takes one of those books for free, it's being counted on the Amazon bestseller list as an actual sale. So that completely skews the rankings in terms of how many books are actually selling. And let me tell you something else that, that makes it extremely inaccurate, which is that when a book is sold, let's say, for $7.50 on the list, and it's, an, it's a book by a big five publisher, what the author earnings folks do is they say, well, $7.50. The publisher gets 70%, Amazon gets 30%, and the author gets a quarter of the entire retail price. That's what ebook royalties are. Well, what they don't calculate for is that $7.50 isn't the digital list price. It's the sale price. And the publisher gets 70% of the digital list price. And the author gets a quarter of the digital list price, not a quarter of the sale price. And so all of these mistakes just make the data terribly inaccurate. So, you know, we can talk about author earnings, but I, I just think it's del- deliberately misleading. It could be really good. Um, and we've talked, you know, we, we do our own author reports and our own scraping of data. And we've, we've tried to talk the sense into those folks, and they, they just don't want to listen. Yeah, that's the thing with a lot of reports is that, you know, with with Amazon, they don't publicly disclose anything. They keep sort of all the internal data and metrics in-house. And so it's sort of hard to validate a lot of uh, analysis that's done on, you know, how profitable is it to publish on Amazon? How much is the average author making? You know, those questions are really hard to answer because most people have like their own processes and the way that they glean that data and then the way that they present the data. I I know with author earnings, when they publish uh, their reports, I mean, it's a lot of content to digest. They don't make it that easy. It's all full of graphs. I mean, you know, literally it's like 10,000 words plus, you know, for, for each report. And so, because they do it on a monthly basis, it's it's hard to it's hard to read. I mean, I tried reading their their July report uh, or their June report, whatever one that they just did, and I mean, it was it was it was a trial and tribulation to get through it. And I mean, I, I read reports daily. I mean, it's just not easy. Uh, but I, I get I guess I just don't really find their reports that interesting, anyways. So well, what what you, the only thing you need to read is the methodology. And when you realize how bankrupt the methodology is, there's really no reason to look at the results. I mean, the charts are interesting. You know, what percentage of books are indie published and what percentage of books are in these genres. Um, but when it's just such a, I mean, here's one reason why all of those charts don't make any sense. It takes a snapshot of the bestseller list. You know, what time of day is the snapshot being taken? Is it being taken during a time of high buying in the U.S.? Is it being taken at midnight when things shake out? Is it a week-long aggregate of bestseller lists or does it take into account when books spike up the bestseller list due to very, very short-term promotions, or are we looking at sort of overall sales over a longer period of time? So you really can't trust almost anything coming out of that report, and I really wish you could, because we've been scraping data at Digital Book World for two years, and you can glean some really interesting stuff from it, but we don't go 50,000 books deep and 80,000 books deep. Um, so I would love for that data to be cleaner and better and, and have more relevance, 
but unfortunately it just it just doesn't. So, you know, I, I skim through once I get past the methodology just to see what's there. But once until the methodology changes, there's just there's really no reason to read it. Uh, Jeremy, you do uh, a lot of writing for Forbes, right? For their online. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have you heard that Forbes actually got sold to a Chinese company? Yeah, a Hong Kong-based uh, investment group. So for those listeners that have, you know, grown up reading Forbes or, or trust Forbes as, a, you know, a, a respected news publication, I mean, I, I know I do. Do you think that anything will change with the new owners? You know, I asked my editors there if anything was going to change, and um, I didn't hear back. So I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, But my guess is that in the short term, no, nothing will change. Um, You know, I used to write about magazines and media, and this is just really me spitballing here as to what this might mean. But my guess is that these investors, you know, they like the Forbes brand. They like what Forbes does when it comes to conferences and sort of international presence and its list. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of brand equity there that maybe uh, an American or a European investor wouldn't give Forbes credit for. Um, so I think probably the magazine will continue to run as it has been uh, for a long time. You know, the leadership is staying in place. And uh, that usually means things will stay relatively the same. Now, I could be eating my words in a year or two when uh-huh. everything changes. But, um, you know, it looks like things are going to stay relatively stable, at least for now. Yeah, I heard that before Forbes was bought out, that they were on the market for about a year trying to find, you know, somebody to, you know, uh, to to buy the company. There was a lot of sort of other investors that were looking to de-invest themselves of the company. And so I think that that was a motivating factor. But, you know, Forbes, uber trusted, you know, when when you think of uh, American financial news companies and and inciting, you know, uh, kind of the insightful news pieces that they do. And I mean, you do a lot on there with uh, digital publishing, you know, the the future of media and things like that. So I'm kind of interested from my point of view as just being a casual reader, uh, if anything will, will change. But if anything, it's just it's new people with money that are, are, you know, all aboard that whether the editorial direction changes, uh, I'm not too sure. I I bet it probably really won't change at all, but you may see some subtle uh, changes. Um, A lot of people have Android and and iOS tablets and uh, Google has been getting a lot of flack with uh, in-app purchases, uh, freemium type games, where a game is uh, free to download, but it's full of microtransactions. You know, buy gold for $2.99, buy gems for $10.99, you know, increase the speed in which a building is being created. And there's a lot of lawsuits uh, brought to Apple and Google by parents that their kids end up racking thousands of dollars on their credit card and they don't really, the kids don't really realize that they're paying real money for all this type of stuff. Uh, apparently, uh, Google has reached an agreement with the European Union uh, that indicates no title offering it in-app purchases can be labeled as free anymore. So there's going to be a new classification a system in the EU at least for now uh, that will enforce to inform parents when or kids when they're actually downloading a game that's full of microtransactions that this game technically is not free. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, Amazon is also being uh, investigated by the, the FTC yeah. for this right now. Um, so, you know, this is something that was bound to happen. You know, this was the, 
the golden goose for a lot of these, uh, you know, app companies. And I'm talking about Google, uh, Apple, and Amazon, but also the companies that, that create the Candy Crushes of the world. Um, you know, you can play Candy Crush for free, but if you want to buy some of the special power-ups, you want to advance to the next level um, quicker, you've got to pay. And it's not a lot of money, but it can add up quickly. And, and, and those companies are, are raking in the money. Um, you know, I'm not sure how deceptive these business practices are and if it should be more uh, an, a situation of, of buyer beware. Um, but I don't think it would be a bad thing if the labeling became more clear. I mean, it's not like this limited packaging area for these apps to explain themselves. Uh, so why not make them? Uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about is a fellow Vancouver company where I'm located called Bitlet. And uh, they got uh, investment from former Kobo CEO Michael Servinius uh, to expand their efforts. And today they just reached an agreement with HarperCollins uh, to run a pilot project. And uh, it basically Bitlet runs the business. So if you have uh, the physical book, you can either get the digital book for free or for a paltry amount of money. So HarperCollins is doing stuff with uh, Neil Stevenson, Jeannie Frost, uh, Kim Harrison, uh, Gregory McGuire, Jack Canfield, and Andrew Gross. And each title costs $1.99 to $2.99 if you have the physical version. It's basically you take a photo of the copyright page uh, with your name uh, written on it, and then a book will automatically be added to the app. And so Bitlet has an app for Google, Android, and iOS, uh, but they also have 20,000 other titles uh, from smaller publishers uh, such as O'Reilly Media, um, you know, Kids Can Press, Chicago Review Press, and things like that. What do you think about this type of ebook and print bundling system? I, I know we've talked about this before, but Bitlet seems to, you know, they, they're attracting a major publisher and they've attracted some major funding. Do you think, uh, what do you think about this, this method as being able to actually bundle things and make it work? I think it's neat, you know. Um... Uh, you know, for someone like me, I will often uh, have a book and then I'll want to go somewhere and then I'll, you know, really wish I had the digital version of it. Um, and I would love a really, really easy, convenient way to make that happen. And I've, I've talked to the BitLit folks and I've seen the BitLit software in action and it sounds a little cumbersome, but it's actually pretty neat. You know, that said, again, right now, I think that this is marginal. You know, the main ebook business is power readers on e-reading devices, just plowing through books. Um, you know, big bestsellers going to those casual readers who are going to read, you know, five, six books a year at most, or just even just the two or three big books a year. So that's the main business. Um, you know, all this other stuff is just marginal uh, until it isn't, and right now it is. So, you know, I think it's cool. I think it's neat. You know, HarperCollins has been by far, in my opinion, the most um, vocal and experimental publisher over the past year and a half or so. I think it directly has to do with the fact that it has uh, new and very different leadership uh, than what it did two or three years ago. Um, leadership that comes from outside of the publishing industry. And, you know, I think this is just HarperCollins continuing to experiment, continuing to push the envelope, continuing to see, you know, what else is good, what else is out there, what else will work, what else might not work. Um, and, you know, just trying things and being fearless and unafraid. So from a business standpoint, I like the move. I think it's interesting. You know, do I think it's going to set the world on fire? Uh, you, you could predict it, Michael, from talking to me on this podcast for, for so long now. The answer, I think, is no. 
Yeah, I'm actually meeting with the, the founder of the company this Friday because we're both in the same town. So I figure we might it's time that we we meet and, you know, uh, get an overview of sort of what their direction as a company is uh, going forward. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I've played around with their apps. It is a bit unwieldy. But considering they got a lot of funding now, it's all a matter of refining the product and, you know, tapping into the knowledge base of some uh, pretty forward-thinking investors. Uh, before we wrap up the show today, Jeremy, do you have any uh, thoughts on any industry news or any uh, type of occurrences you want to talk about? It has been an extremely exciting few months, um, you know, between Kindle Unlimited and HarperCollins uh, selling direct and some of the other things. Um, you know, the hits just keep on coming. And, you know, ever since I started a digital book world, uh, almost three years ago, three years ago this October, um, it has been the never-ending wall-to-wall action. Um, and, you know, for, for people out there who are, you know, they're, they're, they buy e-readers, they read e-books, um, you know, you're part of an exciting uh, revolution in the way that people consume books and, and the way that people read. And for people who are listening to this who are interested in the industry or who work in the industry, um, man, what an exciting time uh, to be a part of it. Um, and it's exciting, it's exhausting, um, but, you know, I'm really glad uh, that, that I'm involved. So, um, I hope the summer's a little bit quieter for the next few months. I don't see that happening with Amazon and Hachette, um, you know, still negotiating and Amazon and Simon and Schuster also involved in, in negotiations. Um, don't forget about we'll the Apple, soon. the Apple settlement in New York. With Absolutely. That. The Apple settlement, that could be a big windfall for, for Amazon and for publishers. You know, if Apple has to, um, pump hundreds of millions of dollars into, um, readers' accounts and pay them back for books that they bought, uh, a lot of that money is going to be used to go turn around and buy more books. Um, so that will be a big story for publishers, and that could really inject some money into the industry. I mean, remember, the U.S. trade publishing industry is about $14 billion, $15 billion or so uh, each year. So if another billion comes into it or, or part of a billion comes into it, I mean, that is, is a real boost uh, for publishers potentially. Yeah, you have to figure if Apple has to pay out $450 million in damages, uh, it's like a, what happened with a lot of publishers when they settled out of court where customers aren't really getting checks as much as they are getting ebook credits with whoever they bought the books from. So if you mm-hmm. bought the books from Amazon or Barnes Noble or Kobo, I mean, they're basically going to be getting, a, you know, customers coming back that may have not been buying books from them for a while and saying, you know, I have $10 in credit. I could buy one book at nine ninety nine or at five ninety nine, but maybe I'll spend that extra three or four dollars and buy that second title, and then you know all of a sudden people start getting more invested into to buying digital books again. So, um, you know, it, you make a, a valid point with um, you know people coming back to these bookstores and using credit that they had. Certainly, the credits do expire. Uh, they, I believe, that when the publishers settled out of court, you had the credits for about a year before they expired and they just disappeared so um, in goody reader news we uh, have just released a new mobile version of our app so if you like to keep informed about all the latest e-reader and digital publishing ebook news on your smartphone uh, we have a new uh, responsive site that is accessed by just going to your web browser and opening up goodyreader.com. But we also have an app for Android now, so you could just go to either Google Play or our own Goody Reader app store, and the link will be 
to the download in our show. And then you could uh, keep informed about all the stuff on the go. So you've been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with Michael Kozlowski and Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. And everybody take care. <laughs>